Section twenty five of the South Pole. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. The South Pole by Roald Edmondson. Translation by A. G. Carter. Section twenty five. Volume two, chapter eleven. Through the Mountains. Part three. After camping, two of us went out to explore farther. The prospect from the tent was not encouraging, but we might possibly find things better than we expected. We were lucky to find the going so fine as it was on the glacier. We had left our crampons behind at the butcher's shop, and if we had found smooth ice instead of a good firm snow surface, such as we now had, it would have caused us much trouble. Up, still up, among monsters of crevasses, some of them hundreds of feet wide and possibly thousands of feet deep. Our prospects of advancing were certainly not bright. As far as we could see in the line of our route, one immense ridge towered above another, concealing on their farther sides huge, wide chasms which all had to be avoided. We went forward, steadily forward, though the way round was both long and troublesome. We had no rope on this time, as the irregularities were so plain that it would have been difficult to go into them. It turned out, however, at several points that the rope would not have been out of place. We were just going to cross over one of the numerous ridges, the surface here looked perfectly whole, when a great piece broke right under the back half of Hansen's ski. We could not deny ourselves the pleasure of glancing down into the hole. The sight was not an inviting one, and we agreed to avoid this place when we came on with our dogs and sledges. Every day we had occasion to bless our ski. We often used to ask each other where we should now have been without these excellent appliances. The usual answer was, most probably at the bottom of some crevasse. When we first read the different accounts of the aspect and nature of the barrier, it was clear to all of us, who were born and bred with ski on our feet, that these must be regarded as indispensable. This view was confirmed and strengthened every day, and I am not giving too much credit to our excellent ski when I say that they not only played a very important part, but possibly the most important of all, on our journey to the South Pole. Many a time we traversed stretches of surface so cleft and disturbed that it would have been an impossibility to get over them on foot. I need scarcely insist on the advantages of ski and deep, loose snow. After advancing for two hours, we decided to return. From the raised ridge on which we were then standing, the surface ahead of us looked more promising than ever, but we had so often been deceived on the glacier that we had now become definitely sceptical. How often, for instance, had we thought that beyond this or that undulation our trials would be at an end, and that the way to the south would lie open and free, only to reach the place and find that the ground behind the ridge was, if possible, worse than what we had already been struggling with. But this time we seemed somehow to feel victory in the air. The formations appeared to promise it, and yet, had we been so often deceived by these formations that we now refused to offer them a thought? Was it possibly instinct that told us this? I do not know, but certain it is that Hansen and I agreed, as we stood there discussing our prospects, that behind the farthest ridge we saw we should conquer the glacier. We had a feverish desire to go and have a look at it, but the way round the many crevasses was long, and, I may as well admit it, we were beginning to get tired. The return, downhill as it was, did not take long, and soon we were able to tell our comrades that the prospects of the morrow were very promising. While we had been away, Hassel had measured the Nilsen mountain, and found its height to be 15,500 feet above the sea. How well I remember that evening, when we stood contemplating the glorious sight that nature offered, 
and believing the air to be so clear that anything within range of vision must have shown itself. And how well, too, I remember our astonishment on the return journey on finding the whole landscape completely transformed. If it had not been for Mount Helmer Hansen, it would have been difficult for us to know where we were. The atmosphere in these regions may play the most awkward tricks. Absolutely clear as it seemed to us that evening, it nevertheless turned out later that it had been anything but clear. One has, therefore, to be very careful about what one sees or does not see. In most cases it has proved that travellers in the polar regions have been more apt to see too much than too little. If, however, we had charted this tract as we saw it the first time, a great part of the mountain ranges would have been omitted. During the night a gale sprang up from the south-east, and blew so that it howled in the guy-ropes of the tent. It was well that the tent-pegs had a good hold. In the morning, while we were at breakfast, it was still blowing, and we had some thoughts of waiting for a time. But suddenly, without warning, the wind dropped to such an extent that all our hesitation vanished. What a change the southeast wind had produced! The splendid covering of snow that the day before had made ski-running a pleasure was now swept away over great stretches of surface, exposing the hard substratum. Our thoughts flew back. The crampons we had left behind seemed to dance before my eyes, backwards and forwards, grinning and pointing fingers at me. It would be a nice little extra trip back to the butchers to fetch them. Meanwhile we packed and made everything ready. The tracks of the day before were not easy to follow, but if we lost them now and again on the smooth ice surface we picked them up later on the snow-wave that had resisted the attack of the wind. It was hard and strenuous work for the drivers. The sledges were difficult to manage over the smooth sloping ice. Sometimes they went straight, but just as often crosswise, requiring sharp attention to keep them from capsizing. And this had to be prevented at all costs, as the thin provision cases would not stand many bumps on the ice. Besides which, it was such hard work writing the sledges again that for this reason alone the drivers exercised the greatest care. The sledges were put to a severe test that day, with the many great and hard irregularities we encountered on the glacier. It is a wonder they survived it, and is a good testimonial for Bjarland's work. The glacier that day presented the worst confusion we had yet had to deal with. Hassel and I went in front, as usual, with a rope on. Up to the spot Hansen and I had reached the evening before, our progress was comparatively easy. One gets on so much quicker when one knows that the way is practicable. After this point it became worse. Indeed, it was often so bad that we had to stop for a long time and try in various directions before finding a way. More than once the axe had to be used to hack away obstructions. At one time things looked really serious. Chasm after chasm, hummock after hummock, so high and steep that they were like mountains. Here we went out and explored in every direction to find a passage. At last we found one, if, indeed, it deserved the name of a passage. It was a bridge so narrow that it scarcely allowed room for the width of the sledge, a fearful abyss on each side. The crossing of this place reminded me of the tight-rope walker going over Niagara. It was a good thing none of us was subject to giddiness, and that the dogs did not know exactly what the result of a false step would be. On the other side of this bridge we began to go downhill, and our course now lay in a long valley between lofty undulations on each side. It tried our patience severely to advance here, as the line of the hollow was fairly long and ran due west. We tried several times to lay our course towards the south and clamber up the side of the undulation, but these efforts did not pay us. We could always get up onto the ridge, but we could not come down again on the other side. 
There was nothing to be done but to follow the natural course of the valley until it took us into the tract lying to the south. It was especially the drivers whose patience was sorely tried, and I could see them now and then take a turn up to the top of the ridge, not satisfied with the exploration Hassel and I had made. But the result was always the same. They had to submit to nature's caprices and follow in our tracks. Our course along this natural line was not entirely free from obstruction. Crevasses of various dimensions constantly crossed our path. The ridge or undulation, at the top of which we at last arrived, had quite an imposing effect. It terminated on the east in a steep drop to the underlying surface, and attained at this point a height of over one hundred feet. On the west it sloped gradually into the lower ground and allowed us to advance that way. In order to have a better view of the surroundings, we ascended the eastern and highest part of the ridge, and from here we at once had a confirmation of our supposition of the day before. The ridge we had then seen, behind which we hoped to find better conditions, could now be seen a good way ahead. And what we then saw made our hearts beat fast with joy. Could that great, white, unbroken plain over there be real, or was it only an illusion? Time would show. Meanwhile, Hassel and I jogged on, and the others followed. We had to get through a good many difficulties yet before we reached that point, but, compared with all the breakneck places we had already crossed, these were of a comparatively tame description. It was with a sigh of relief that we arrived at the plain that promised so well. Its extent was not very great, but we were not very exacting either, in this respect, after our last few days' march over the broken surface. Farther to the south we could still see great masses piled up by pressure, but the intervals between them were very great, and the surface was whole. This was, then, the first time since we tackled the Devil's Glacier that we were able to steer true south for a few minutes. As we progressed, it could be seen that we had really come upon another kind of ground. For once we had not been made fools of. Not that we had an unbroken, level surface to go upon. It would be a long time before we came to that but we were able to keep our course for long stretches at a time. The huge crevasses became rarer, and so filled up at both ends that we were able to cross them without going a long way round. There was a new life in all of us, both dogs and men, and we went rapidly southward. As we advanced, the conditions improved more and more. We could see in the distance some huge dome-shaped formations that seemed to tower high into the air. These turned out to be the southernmost limit of the big crevasses, and to form the transition to the third phase of the glacier. It was a stiff climb to get up these domes, which were fairly high and swept smooth by the wind. They lay straight in our course, and from their tops we had a good view. The surface we were entering upon was quite different from that on the northern side of the domes. Here the big crevasses were entirely filled with snow, and might be crossed anywhere. What specially attracted one's attention here was an immense number of small formations in the shape of haycocks. Great stretches of the surface were swept bare, exposing the smooth eyes. It was evident that these formations, or faces in the glacier, were due to the underlying ground. The first tract we had passed, where the confusion was so extreme, must be the part that lay nearest the bare land. In proportion as the glacier left the land, it became less disturbed. In the haycock district the disturbance had not produced cracks in the surface to any extent, only upheaval here and there. How these haycocks were formed, and what they looked like inside, we were soon to find out. It was a pleasure to be able to advance all the time, instead of constantly turning and going round. Only once or twice did we have to turn aside for the larger haycocks, otherwise we kept our course. The great, clean-swept stretches of surface that we came upon from time to time were split in every direction, but the cracks were very narrow, about half an inch wide. 
We had difficulty in finding a place for the tent that evening. The surface was equally hard everywhere, and at last we had to set it on the bare ice. Luckily for our tent pegs, this ice was not of the bright steely variety. It was more milky in appearance and not so hard, and we were thus able to knock in the pegs with the axe. When the tent was up, Hassel went out as usual to fetch snow for the cooker. As a rule, he performed this task with a big knife, specially made for snow. But this evening he went out armed with an axe. He was very pleased with the abundant and excellent material that lay to his hand. There was no need to go far. Just outside the tent door, two feet away, stood a fine little haycock that looked as if it would serve the purpose well. Hassel raised his axe and gave a good sound blow. The axe met with no resistance and went in up to the haft. The haycock was hollow. As the axe was pulled out, the surrounding part gave way, and one could hear the pieces of ice falling down through the dark hole. It appeared, then, that two feet from our door we had a most convenient way down into the cellar. Hassel looked as if he enjoyed the situation. "'Black as a sack,' he smiled. "'Couldn't see any bottom.' Hansen was beaming. No doubt he would have liked the tent a little nearer. The material provided by the haycock was of the best quality, and well adapted for cooking purposes." The next day, December 1st, was a very fatiguing one for us all. From early morning a blinding blizzard raged from the southeast with a heavy fall of snow. The going was of the very worst kind, polished ice. I stumbled forward on ski and had comparatively easy work. The drivers had been obliged to take off their ski and put them on the loads so as to walk by the side, support the sledges, and give the dogs help when they came to a difficult place. And that was pretty often for on this smooth ice surface there were a number of small scattered sastrugi, and these consisted of a kind of snow that reminded one more of fish glue than of anything else when the sledges came in contact with it. The dogs could get no hold with their claws on the smooth ice, and when the sledge came on to one of these tough little waves they could not manage to haul it over, try as they might. The driver then had to put all his strength into it to prevent the sledge stopping. Thus, in most cases, the combined efforts of men and dogs carried the sledge on. In the course of the afternoon the surface again began to be more disturbed, and great crevasses crossed our path time after time. These crevasses were really rather dangerous. They looked very innocent, as they were quite filled up with snow, but on a nearer acquaintance with them we came to understand that they were far more hazardous than we dreamt of at first. It turned out that between the loose snow filling and the firm ice edges there was a fairly broad open space, leading straight down into the depths. The layer of snow which covered it over was in most cases quite thin. In driving out into one of these snow-filled crevasses nothing happened as a rule, but it was in getting off on the other side that the critical moment arrived, for here the dogs came up onto the smooth ice surface and could get no hold for their claws, with the result that it was left entirely to the driver to haul the sledge up. The strong pull he then had to give sent him through the thin layer of snow. Under these circumstances he took a good firm hold of the sledge-lashing, or of a special strap that had been made with a view of these accidents. But familiarity breeds contempt, even with the most cautious, and some of the drivers were often within an ace of going down into the cellar. If this part of the journey was trying for the dogs, it was certainly no less so for the men. If the weather had even been fine, so that we could have looked about us, we should not have minded it so much, but in this vile weather it was indeed no pleasure. Our time was also a good deal taken up with thawing noses and cheeks as they froze. Not that we stopped. We had no time for that. We simply took off a mitt and laid the warm hand on the frozen spot as we went. When we thought we had restored sensation, we put the hand back into the mitt. By this time it would want warming. 
One does not keep one's hands bare for long, with a thermometer several degrees below zero, and a storm blowing. In spite of the unfavourable conditions we had been working in, the sledge-meters that evening showed a distance of fifteen and a half miles. We were well satisfied with the day's work when we camped. Let us cast a glance into the tent this evening. It looks cosy enough. The inner half of the tent is occupied by three sleeping-bags, whose respective owners have found it both comfortable and expedient to turn in, and may now be seen engaged with their diaries. The outer half, that nearest the door, has only two sleeping-bags, but the rest of the space is taken up with the whole cooking apparatus of the expedition. The owners of these two bags are still sitting up. Hansen is cook, and will not turn in until the food is ready and served. Wisting is his sworn comrade and assistant, and is ready to lend him any aid that may be required. Hansen appears to be a careful cook. He evidently does not like to burn the food, and his spoon stirs the contents of the pot incessantly. Soup! The effect of the word is instantaneous. Everyone sits up at once with a cup in one hand and a spoon in the other. Each one in his turn has his cup filled with what looks like the most tasty vegetable soup. Scalding hot it is, as one can see by the faces, but for all that it disappears with surprising rapidity. Again the cups are filled, this time with more solid stuff pemmican. With praiseworthy dispatch their contents are once more demolished, and they are filled for the third time. There is nothing the matter with these men's appetites. The cups are carefully scraped, and the enjoyment of bread and water begins. It is easy to see, too, that it is an enjoyment, greater, to judge by the pleasure on their faces, than the most skilfully devised menu could afford. They positively caress the biscuits before they eat them, and the water, ice-cold water they all call for, this also disappears in great quantities, and procures, I feel certain from their expression, a far greater pleasure and satisfaction than the finest wine that was ever produced. The primus hums softly during the whole meal, and the temperature in the tent is quite pleasant. When the meal is over, one of them calls for scissors and looking-glass, and then one may see the polar explorers dressing their hair for the approaching Sunday. The beard is cut quite short with a clipper every Saturday evening. This is done not so much from motives of vanity as from considerations of utility and comfort. The beard invites an accumulation of ice, which may often be very embarrassing. A beard in the polar regions seems to me to be just as awkward and unpractical as, well, let us say, walking with a tall hat on each foot. As the beard clipper and the mirror make their round, one after the other disappears into his bag, and with five good-nights silence falls upon the tent. The regular breathing soon announces that the day's work demands its tribute. Meanwhile the southeaster howls, and the snow beats against the tent. The dogs have curled themselves up, and do not seem to trouble themselves about the weather. The storm continued unabated on the following day, and on account of the dangerous nature of the ground we decided to wait a while. In the course of the morning, towards noon perhaps, the wind dropped a little, and out we went. The sun peeped through at times, and we took the welcome opportunity of getting an altitude. Eighty-six degrees, forty-seven minutes south was the result. At this camp we left behind all our delightful reindeer-skin clothing, as we could see that we should have no use for it, the temperature being far too high. We kept the hoods of our reindeer coats, however, we might be glad of them, in going against the wind. Our day's march was not to be a long one. The little slackening of the wind about midday was only a joke. It soon came on again in earnest, with a sweeping blizzard from the same quarter, the southeast. If we had known the ground, we should possibly have gone on, but in this storm and driving snow, which prevented our keeping our eyes open, it was no use. A serious accident might happen and ruin all. Two and a half miles was therefore our whole distance. 
The temperature when we camped was minus 5.8 degrees Fahrenheit. Height above the sea, 9,780 feet. In the course of the night, the wind veered from southeast to north, falling light, and the weather cleared. This was a good chance for us, and we were not slow to avail ourselves of it. A gradually rising ice surface lay before us, bright as a mirror. As on the preceding days, I stumbled along in front on ski, while the others, without their ski, had to follow and support the sledges. The surface still offered filled crevasses, though perhaps less frequently than before. Meanwhile, small patches of snow began to show themselves on the polished surface, and soon increased in number and size, until, before very long, they united and covered the unpleasant ice with a good and even layer of snow. Then ski were put on again, and we continued our way to the south with satisfaction. We were all rejoicing that we had now conquered this treacherous glacier, and congratulating ourselves on having at last arrived on the actual plateau. As we were going along, feeling pleased about this, a ridge suddenly appeared right ahead, telling us plainly that perhaps all our sorrows were not yet ended. The ground had begun to sink a little, and as we came nearer, we could see that we had to cross a rather wide, but not deep, valley before we arrived under the ridge. Great lines of hummocks and haycock-shaped pieces of ice came in view on every side. We could see that we should have to keep our eyes open. And now we came to the formation in the glacier that we called the Devil's Ballroom. Little by little, the covering of snow that we had praised in such high terms disappeared. And before us lay this wide valley, bare and gleaming. At first it went well enough. As it was downhill, we were going at a good pace on the smooth ice. Suddenly, Wisting's sledge cut into the surface and turned over on its side. We all knew what had happened. One of the runners was in a crevasse. Wisting set to work, with the assistance of Hassel, to raise the sledge and take it out of its dangerous position. Meanwhile, Bjarland had got out his camera and was setting it up. Accustomed as we were to such incidents, Hansen and I were watching the scene from a point a little way in advance, where we had arrived when it happened. As the photography took rather a long time, I assumed that the crevasse was one of the filled ones and presented no particular danger, but that Bjarland wanted to have a souvenir among his photographs of the numerous crevasses and ticklish situations we had been exposed to. As to the crack being filled up, there was of course no need to inquire. I hailed them and asked how they were getting on. "'Oh, all right,' was the answer. "'We've just finished.' "'What does the crevasse look like?' "'Oh, as usual,' they shouted back. No bottom. I mention this little incident just to show how one can grow accustomed to anything in this world. There were these two, Wisting and Hassel, lying over a yawning, bottomless abyss, and having their photograph taken. Neither of them gave a thought to the serious side of the situation. To judge from the laughter and jokes we heard, one would have thought their position was something quite different. When a photographer had quietly and leisurely finished his work, he got a remarkably good picture of the scene. The other two, together, raised the sledge, and the journey was continued. It was at this crevasse that we entered His Majesty's ballroom. The surface did not really look bad. True, the snow was blown away, which made it difficult to advance, but we did not see many cracks. There were a good many pressure masses, as already mentioned, but even in the neighbourhood of these we could not see any marked disturbance. The first sign that the surface was more treacherous than it appeared to be was when Hansen's leading dogs went right through the apparently solid floor. They remained hanging by their harness, and were easily pulled up again. When we looked through the hole they had made in the crust, it did not give us the impression of being very dangerous, as, two or three feet below the outer crust, there lay another surface, which appeared to consist of pulverized ice. We assumed that this lower surface was the solid one, and that therefore there was no danger in falling through the upper one. 
but Bjarland was able to tell us a different story. He had, in fact, fallen through the outer crust, and was well on his way through the inner one as well, when he got hold of a loop of rope on a sledge and saved himself in the nick of time. Time after time the dogs now fell through, and time after time the men went in. The effect of the open space between the two crusts was that the ground under our feet sounded unpleasantly hollow as we went over it. The drivers whipped up their dogs as much as they could, and with shouts and brisk encouragement they went rapidly over the treacherous floor. Fortunately, this curious formation was not of great extent, and we soon began to observe a change for the better as we came up the ridge. It soon appeared that the ballroom was the glacier's last farewell to us. With it all irregularities ceased, and both surface and going improved by leaps and bounds, so that before very long we had the satisfaction of seeing that at last we had really conquered all these unpleasant difficulties. The surface at once became fine and even, with a splendid covering of snow everywhere, and we went rapidly on our way to the south with a feeling of security and safety. End of section 25 End of Volume 2, Chapter 11, Through the Mountains.